What you are about to hear is a live podcast that Gemma and I created a couple weeks ago. You'll hear questions submitted by listeners, and some are asked by listeners who are tuning in live. The audio is not perfect. Recording a conversation live on the air was new to both of us. If you have questions you'd like Gemma and I to discuss, feel free to email them to me at shane at itsfoulplay.com or go to our website, itsfoulplay.com. For anyone who is joining us and you've never listened to Foul Play with Gemma and I, I'm Shane Waters and this is Gemma Hoskins. I am one of the hosts for Foul Play in the Hometown History Podcast and Gemma joins me in the podcast for season two of Foul Play, where we talk about Sister Kathy's murder. And Gemma, people will know you from Netflix's The Keepers. I haven't looked at yes. any of the questions, you guys, so I have no idea what you want to know. Let's see. For dinner, I'm having hummus and chips so far. <laughs> there we go. I want hummus. All right. Gemma, for the people who are joining us who may have never seen The Keepers on Netflix, why don't you explain what The Keepers is about, it, a little about Sister Kathy's order. For the two people in the world that have not seen The Keepers, <laughs> I looked at the list. Everybody's seen The Keepers. But anyway, I don't mean to make this funny, but there's always got to be some levity, right? The Keepers is this Netflix series about the murder of Sister Kathy Sesnick. She was my high school English teacher. And... The reason we believe she was murdered is because girls who were being abused by adults in the building, adults plural, mainly two priests, went to her and told her what was happening. And we believe that, I hate to say it this way, but she was collateral damage because Kathy would have done the right thing. I believe she did tell the authorities and she did tell her supervisors, but there's a huge cover-up, as has happened for decades in the Catholic Church. And we also know that law enforcement was involved in some of the abuse and possibly the murder. So where could she turn? So if you haven't seen The Keepers, it's still on Netflix. Do not get the DVD. If you get the DVD, it's going to be a pirated copy, which probably won't be good quality, or it will be an incomplete copy because partial copies were sent to the media. Like, Shane, you may have gotten one, right? That didn't have every episode on it. No, I didn't. I oh, that's because you, you jumped in and did an interview with me before you were supposed to. That's why yes. you didn't get the DVD. Anyway, yes. but actually my Keo classmate, Abby Schaub, she and I had been looking into this for several years before the Keepers filmmakers even came to Baltimore and decided to do this documentary. So once they got a confirmation from Jean Wayner, who was, the story is mostly about her. Abby and us are the narrators that kind of tie it all together. But Jean was being abused by the chaplain, Joseph Maskell. And when Kathy was murdered, he took her to see Kathy's body. And I believe that was to threaten her into silence. So Jean is an amazing woman, and she really is the reason that that we're doing all this, because she and the other Keogh women deserve justice, and we deserve to find the answers. And she did go to Kathy, and Kathy confronted Maskell, and Kathy disappeared and was found two months later, in a nutshell. 
That was a really good nutshell, to be honest with you. I'm sure you get that a lot. People wanting you to give an overview about the keepers. For anyone who has already seen the keepers, what would be your quick summary of updates since the keepers aired? Oh my goodness. Okay. Shane, so that'll be four years in May, if you can believe that. I do think we know more now than we did when we were making it. Abby and I have gone our separate ways. She's not involved anymore in the digging for answers, but she does a yeoman's job following legislation around the country on the statute of limitations for sexual abuse. And she also is very active as an advocate for survivors. So with that said, I have continued trying to find people and most of the time on the phone, the old fashioned way. And Shane, you and I have done 60 episodes that include a lot of people. How many is it? About 60? Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so the people that Shane and I talked to were individuals who were not ready to report their abuse, but once The keepers came out, they either reported it or came forward to talk about it. And we've interviewed them. We were able to find, Shane was able to find the hunter who found Sister Kathy. That was pretty crazy way. He sent him a letter and the guy actually called him and answered an old fashioned letter. We've talked to a lot of families of people who were abused or people have come forward with a lot of information. I wrote a book. And it's not a retelling of the keepers. So if you want a retelling of the keepers, don't buy it. But it does give my theories about what happened and about who I think did it. Now, again, they're theories because I don't know if everybody understands that the only way to solve a cold case is either an eyewitness or a confession or DNA. And guess what, you guys? All three are possible, but none of them are likely. So I have sent everything I have to the Baltimore County Police. And of course, the information only goes in one direction. And I really feel like right now they don't love Gemma a lot because I really feel like I rocked the boat too much. And I think I'm close and I ask questions that they might not want to answer. So I have asked a lot of questions and I have not gotten any answers. And the same with the Malecki case. I'm working really closely with that family. We are making some progress, and I can't talk a whole lot about that, but the Maleckis and I are working really closely with another friend, and we are making some progress, and the only thing I can tell you is that, get this, it's because of the new administration. And Shane, I know you don't even know about this. I know. I was asked not to, but anyway, so it all happens in my kitchen on my computer, and in the Malecki homes, and we're going to find out what happened to Joyce. But as far as Kathy, I still don't know. I think I know who did it, and I'm happy to share that theory when that question comes up, because I know it's coming. What else do we know that's new, Shane? Help me out here. A lot more survivors who were ready to talk. Oh, Shane and I have a really outstanding one coming up that you guys won't want to miss. We're going to talk to the medical assistant who worked for Dr. Christian Richter at the time that he was doing a lot of illegal stuff in his office. And she was changing her name to protect her privacy, but she pretty much spills her guts and she has reported it all to the attorney general. And again, this is a good time to say that if you know something or you've seen something, 
you have to speak up. I can help you get in touch with the right people, but there's a criminal investigation going on in Maryland right now. They're in about two and a half years going on right now, and they are taking reports and information by phone, in person, or you can connect with the guy by email about any abuse by clergy or people who were connected with them. And I think what's going to happen is that is going to lead us to who killed Sister Kathy. Because a lot of the people that have reported have information about Kathy as well. So they're sharing all of that with the Attorney General Brian Frosch's criminal investigator. And I can help you guys get in touch with him if you need to. His name is Richard Wolf. I forget what your question was. Oh, what has happened since the Keepers lot? I moved to be safer, which I know I, I have a big personality. I say what I think, but there's 50 people one line right now. I think you would all protect me if I needed you to. And I would just get in the middle of a big crowd and you'd all put masks on and hide me. And so I'd be okay. I don't mean to sound funny about it, but our director always said, the more public I am, the safer I am. And I said, what if I get killed? And he said, Liz will know who did it. Uh, Ryan. One of the other things that we broadcasted through the podcast was we know that the police the night that Kathy had disappeared, or at least the following night, knew about the abuse at the school because of what wow. she was. That was a yes. really good one. That was a bombshell, wasn't it? Can yeah. you want to talk about that or you want me to? Why don't you go ahead? Okay. I was hoping you would say that. Okay. <laughs> so we have a friend who came forward when she saw the keepers. She was a friend of Kathy and Russell, very good friends with Russ. She was a year ahead of me at TO. Now, people think it's strange for students to hang out with their teachers. Yeah, but in those days, it wasn't. And those two nuns, when they left Keo, they were like 25 and 26, and we were all 17 and 18 and 19. So it wasn't that big a deal. And so our friend Sharon, she was very close with Russell. And she told us, she didn't think this was important, but she told Shane and I that the night Kathy disappeared, Russell called her. She had been over there around dinner time to drop off some clothes or pick something up. And she went home and they had dinner. And Russ called her like around 10, said, Kathy's not home yet. Is she with you? And Sharon was like, no, but let me know what happens. So the next day, once everybody realized Kathy was missing and did not come back, the next day, Sharon and her mom went over to the apartment again because they were such good friends. I think, I do think Sharon and her mom had given them some like regular clothes because they didn't have many clothes because of wearing habits all the time. And yeah, they used to borrow clothes from the Keo students and we'd give them stuff. But anyway, so Sharon went over there and there was a detective standing in the living room. And when Sharon went in, he, Russ introduced him, and he said to her, did anybody at Keo ever ask you to do something you didn't want to do? What a loaded question. So Sharon was being, like, she's naive. She wasn't involved in any abuse. She thought that a boy that came to a dance at Keo who tried to kiss her in the hallway, she thought that's the kind of thing this guy meant. That's not what he meant. But for him to have asked that question, means that Russell may have told him about the abuse. And Russell was standing there in that conversation. Now, Sharon told me that 
Jerry Coop. So here we go with Jerry. He was still there. He and Pete McCann spent the whole night there. But he was standing there or sitting there and would have overheard the conversation. I have asked him about this, but he does not remember anything about that. Now, we've identified the detective that may have been talking to Sharon, but we're not sure if it's the same guy. There's a picture out there on the internet, and I can post it tomorrow, of a detective in a trench coat standing outside the apartment talking to Kathy's dad. Kathy's father is in like a suit. Well, a girl that recognized that man as her father got in touch with me. He's still living. He's very sharp, but he doesn't remember the conversation that Sharon was talking about. So we're not sure if it's the same guy. But that was huge. Yeah. I remember us both learning about it. Both just that's the whole reason why Uh we always want people to come forward. And I'll also give you this applause, Jimra. One thing that I always notice that you have done, and I don't know if people realize this, but whenever someone comes forward to you or myself, you always direct them to the authorities because as you tell people, we cannot arrest anyone. We don't have that ability. So I always uh, think that's just a wonderful thing that you do. You always direct them to the authorities or to the prosecutor or whoever it is. Thanks. Yeah, I would have lost my teaching license if I didn't do that kind of thing. Because teachers, I don't know if people know, but everybody in Maryland, all adults in Maryland are mandatory reporters. And I was an elementary teacher and a middle school teacher and mentor for almost 40 years. And if we didn't report it, we could lose our license. So it's really hard because sometimes there's a kid that comes to school all banged up and you know that he got hit, smacked around at home. And you have to report it to social services on the phone. And then social services doesn't take the child out of the home. The kid goes home that night and the parents know that they were reported. So it's a really a double-edged sword, but we are mandatory reporters. So I don't want to scare anybody because I'm really good at helping you get to the right person. And I'll loop you into an email that I stay in until you're ready for me to not be part of the picture. For example, let's say somebody tonight knows something about what happened to Kathy or about abuse that they saw or experienced. If they are confused about what to do, they can get in touch with me or if they get in touch with Shane, if it's a guy, and we can give them the contact information for the right people who will take care of you. The detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, 
We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, recess mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of foul play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted Foul Play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. And that's really part of, of my whole mission right now is to make sure that nobody gets left behind because it's re-abusing if somebody is traumatized by this and is not getting help. So it's so important that if you know something, please come forward. You're not going to be arrested. Frankly, if you know who killed Kathy Sesnick and you can tell somebody that, you are not going to be arrested. You're going to be protected unless you're the doer and you're making a confession. So if it hadn't been for Sharon coming forward, it helped Shane and I tighten up that timeline a lot. In the appendix of my book, I reprinted or I typed the whole missing person report in its entirety. And a friend out there, Dan Smith, he used a FOIA request, got the papers, there were papers missing. So I requested the missing papers and some other evidentiary documents. And I don't think I've ever used that word before, evidentiary. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, so we can't find the missing papers. So if you want to read that missing person report, you will find that the timeline that Kube puts together is quite different than the timeline that's on paper. And we don't know who is right because it's different. And if Russell was afraid to report to the police and they called the police, then we don't know. We don't know what happened. But the times are different. Who did what is different. It's really interesting to put the two things side by side based on urban legend and what people who were there that night have said. And Shane, I forgot to tell you this. I'll just tell you now. I love you. Nah, that's okay. I do love you. I do love you, but that wasn't what I was going to say. It's okay, Alicia. You can still marry him. No, I forgot to tell you that one of Kathy's neighbors, I talked to her this week, and she's thinking about doing a podcast with us. She's almost 80. She remembers everything from that night. And a lot of it is very different than what we've been reading about. Well, I'm excited to hear. I know. She's sharp as can be. I know. I told her what I was having for dinner. And she's, that's no good for your diabetes. You have to eat something that's bump. (laughs) And I was like, geez. Anyway, so we have some really interesting new people coming up. And the fact that they are willing to tell their part of the story, it put it makes the puzzle bigger. 
but it does put some pieces in for us. That's one more cool thing, Gemma, is when we started doing the podcast together, we just thought mm-hmm. we were going to just allow people who were survivors have the opportunity to mm-hmm. tell their story when they weren't ready to tell it during the keepers or they had to sure. go forward. That turned into a quick 60 or something episode. I you know, were releasing this I every know. week. I know. And I've been reposting them. I think you've done some of them too. But this yeah. week, if people haven't heard it, I reposted the one with Sean Kane, who is the spokesperson for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And Shane, you and I have to agree that it was the worst interview anybody ever did with us. Yeah, Gemma, I think? think that, yeah, I think that experience could be a movie in itself. Uh huh. Because it was just unreal. And we kind of had to sneak you into the conversation because we knew that they wouldn't agree to it. And his phone wouldn't stop ringing. I know. I was on mute texting Shane, like, what to say and what not to say. And like, he didn't know himself. He's a grown man. But anyway, Sean Kane had dogs barking in the background, phones ringing, and said, I don't know. I'll send somebody a copy of my book if they can guess how many times he said and have it right. So listen to me. I don't know why I just said that. I don't have any copies, but I'll buy you one, send it to you. So anyway, he was not a good interview. And I feel looking back like it was arrogant on his part and a little patronizing to just be so casual and not taking it as seriously as we did, especially when Shane asked him, how do you keep track of the credibly accused clergy when they have to leave the church? And Kane said, we don't. If you were fired from Home Depot, they wouldn't keep track of you, which makes no sense. And I wouldn't want my mom living down the hall in a retirement community with a credibly accused priest, would you? Not at all. And I can tell people that just from talking to him, my blood pressure was so high during the entire thing. And I recognized at each point where we were not going to agree that we just going to start an argument. And I was so determined to keep him talking. Because that was the only opportunity that we've ever had to ask right. anyone from the Archdiocese questions. So You're when people right. do listen, they You're may right. wonder why I let him boost on some of those things. And that's why I just wanted to, to get him to keep talking right. to us. You're yes. absolutely right. And you did a great job. It was a two-parter. The next piece, I've been reposting them on Sunday night. So anyway, yeah. do you have other questions from people that are listening? I do. And oh, okay. for anyone who is listening right now, you'll see it on your phone. You'll see a little message thing at the bottom of us of where we're talking. So if you have a message that you would like to ask us or say something about, and you're welcome to leave a voice message and we can play it on the air. We actually have one. So I'm going to go ahead and play it, Gemma. So let's see what they have to say. Okay. I know. Hopefully it's not bad. I know. I have a question. Have you or Shane or anybody heard from anyone in Ireland that has been affected by Father Maskell? Great question. Shane, you go first. I do know that there was that reporter who made that article that we tried to reach out to, who was kind of flaky and would not agree to let us interview him or record him. That was a really weird situation. Oh, you talked about the potential survivors that were over there. Sure. Okay. Thank you for that question, because it's really important. And I want to give kudos to Abby, because she has been really intent on finding out more about Maskell's time in Ireland. What we do know from the newspaper articles in that area is that 
he opened up his own counseling office. People did not know he was a priest. They thought he was like a doctor, like a psychiatric doctor. And he was actually seeing children, which makes me sick to even say it. Okay. I think Teresa Lancaster is one here. Teresa, if I say this wrong, just let me know and you can fix it. But we understand that there were several people who came forward who were abused by Maskell. And we also believe that a person or two people who believe they are his children came forward, that he abused their moms. And I'm, let's see, he was in Ireland and the 90s. So how old would they be? Probably 30-ish, maybe. Yeah. And yeah, they believe that they are his children. Now, gosh, his body was exhumed for DNA. So if they want to find out, they can let the Baltimore County Police Department know and have a DNA test done. I don't know if I would want to know that I was Maskell's kid. That might make me want to hurt myself. But, and I don't mean to sound funny. I just, I don't think I would want to know. But anyway, we've heard that. And the reason is that the Irish, okay, the initials, I believe, are HSA. I forget what it stands for. If somebody knows, they can chime in and tell us. But it's like they're, they keep all that confidential. They don't, it's like they're human relations or their human services association. They will not share any of that with us. Now, while he was over there, he applied to become like a member of a, like a priest order or a monk order. And he had to give his past uh, like references. And when this group of priests got in touch with the archdiocese, they found out who he was. And of course, they turned him down. On the other hand, there is no extradition from Ireland, which means he couldn't be arrested and brought back here. He came back on his own for some reason. I'm not sure why, but I would love to know more about his time in Ireland. But that's General, what we, we know right now. We have two more audio messages, so let's see what type of question okay. we have. would love to know from Gemma, who did it and how it happened? Um, is this somebody I know talking? No idea. It to, okay. All right. I'm going to preface this by saying this is a theory. I am not an eyewitness, okay? I did not hear a confession. All right. This is what I think happened, and I'm going to tell you how I believe it. About a year ago, a young man, anybody that's younger than me is young, got in touch with me on Facebook Messenger and told me that when he was a kid at St. Clement's, school, parish, church, he remembered Maskell doing ride-alongs with the police, okay? And he said, have you ever looked at Robert Zimmerman? Yes, I know, guys, the first name, Robert. Now, there are a whole bunch of people that may be listening tonight, I don't know, that think that they planted this seed about Zimmerman out on the internet as a trap to see if anybody would take it and run with it. And that's what they claim I did. I never heard anything about this man before like a legitimate person came forward. Okay, so trolls, don't flatter yourself. 
I didn't hear anything about this guy from you. It all came from this young man that went to St. Clement's. Okay. So I started digging and I found some people from St. Clement's. I found some people that knew about this guy and I talked to them and I found out that he had died. I think it was in the 80s. He was a police officer. His name, Robert Zimmerman, a police officer in the Baltimore County Police Department. Guess who he worked under? Captain James Scannell. Okay. You all know who that is. The guy I offered the crab cake to and then made a face in the camera. That guy. He's dead now. And his family doesn't like me. I wouldn't like me either after, you know, what we've learned about him. Anyway, he worked with him. So we, he was killed crossing the street in Catonsville. It was raining. He was on duty, like walking duty. But, and I'll get back to why I think he killed Kathy, but this is thing. He was standing on the yellow line. A car hit him going east and threw him into the, to the pathway of a car going west. So, of course, me, I look up who the people are, hit him, right? I'm thinking maybe they were brothers of somebody he abused. So they were not. They were normal people. And they had nothing to do with the rest of this story. But he wasn't on duty. He was crossing the street to go in the liquor store and cash a winning lottery ticket. Now, he was in the hospital with shock trauma, I think, from days before he died. And guess what, you guys? The lottery ticket disappeared. And his cop buddies probably took it, had a party or something. I don't know. But anyway, I've talked to so many people about him. And I have his picture. And I looked him up. And when I opened the article about him, the article was by about the Fraternal Order of Police. It's called the FOP. Guess what they call each other? Do you know what they call each other, Shane? Brother. They do. And I opened it up and it said, FOP honors fallen hero, Brother Bob Zimmerman. And I'm like, holy shit. We've been thinking clergy. Maybe it is a cop, Brother Bob. Okay, so the next thing I do was I thought about my Keo friends and not wanting to harm anybody. I sent a handful of them who had been survivors of Maskell. And I said, I came across this name. I have a picture, but it's totally up to you whether you want to look at this person. I know how many of you are looking him up right now. Robert Zimmerman. He is nasty looking. So I sent this out and four of them responded and said they would like to look at him. They all recognized him. One of the people that recognized him was Jean. She said she is not ready to say he's Brother Bob. So friends, I am not saying that. She said, I am not a situation that I remember enough to say that he is. The other three, we don't know of anybody else who called him Brother Bob or heard the name Brother Bob except Jean and now the Fraternal Order of Police. So what I think happened was that he was involved in her murder. I actually got at my nerve and I called his first wife, who, very nice lady, but doesn't want anybody to know she's connected with him. She must have called me back five times with more information. And all this is in the last chapter of my book. And I know when you get to that chapter, it says, yeah, I know you looked ahead. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to read the book first. But 
everybody laughing because they all looked ahead. So if you want to buy the book just for the theory, good on you. So she told me what a monster he was. I actually talked to her again yesterday. I feel very sad for her. Her son just died. She's truly by herself. And I just, my heart breaks for her. But he was not a good person. And he did not do, things he did to her were horrible. And she said, what could she do but call the police? And all his buddies would show up in their cop cars and they'd all be laughing in the driveway because to call the police means they're going to send his friends over. So I have a whole list of officers' names, to be honest with you. And I'm not going to share any of them. I've shared them with the police. And if he was involved, it wouldn't surprise me because I think he was totally capable of it. She told me he had some very strange tools, custom made. And we know that Kathy died of blunt force trauma. And I don't know who has a semi-automatic in their front closet in case the shift gets rough at night. So I have a theory that it was him. I don't know if he meant to kill her, but I do think he was involved in it. Okay, I'm not. I'm trying to protect everybody's privacy, okay? Please don't message me and say, is her name such and such? Because I'm just going to say no. And I want to live. So I think that he possibly did not mean to kill her. And I think things really got out of hand. I do believe now I have a copy of Kathy's autopsy, which I refuse to share. And some copies of this have gotten out on the internet, but I want to reassure everybody it wasn't because of me. I don't think I've even ever shown it to Shane. And I can answer questions about it, but she was strangled and she was hit in the side of the head. Now, the autopsy indicates one head wound, not two. I know Tom Nugent thought there was a hole in the back of Kathy's head. It was on the side above her left ear. And she also, in your neck, guys, there is a bone that protects your throat. It's called the hyoid bone. And it has like little crown on top, like a little thing that's pointed. And one of those crowns was broken off. That can kill you, but it doesn't have to. So if somebody got into Kathy's car by force at her apartment when she returned from Edmondson Village... I think somebody else got the backseat. And I do think it's possible that they may have strangled her to make sure she was unconscious because a witness outside that night saw a woman trying to get out of a moving car going down the road adjacent to the carriage house apartments and somebody pulling her back in. So it's my feeling that somebody was in the backseat and if they pulled her back in, quite possibly could have strangled her to the point where she wasn't conscious just to keep her from fighting. Because you know what, guys? Kathy was not a wimp. She was pretty feisty and she was smart. She would have used her resources. She wasn't a big person. She's smaller than I am and shorter and thin. But I do believe that she would have fought to survive. The other thing I can tell you about the autopsy is that there are small abrasions there were on the back of her neck that would indicate possibly that someone was holding a knife to the back of her neck, like a number of small cuts, not enough to wound her. 
mortally, but enough to probably keep her from moving around. So I think that the head wound was probably after the strangulation. And those two kinds of attacks are very different. Strangulation is usually a crime of passion. And the head wound, I would think, is somebody who they're going to administer the final blow that would probably kill her. But that's my theory, is that Zimmerman did it. I don't think he was alone. I think that if Billy and Edgar were involved, and we know that they both came out with blood on their shirts, that maybe they were like the cleanup crew, or they were the enforcer. I know Debbie Young sometimes called Ed like the enforcer, like he would be the one that would hold somebody down. And Maskell traveled in this huge network of bad guys and high-ranking people in Maryland and the city. So he probably could have found whatever he wanted to find, whether it was thugs or a high-ranking politician to protect him. There are some more questions, so let's let people ask those questions again. There have been some pretty high-profile cases that have come to the public's attention in the last couple of years out of the Baltimore area. I think specifically of Sister Kathy, obviously, and the Adnan Syed case. Do you think that this is an indication of some of the concerns that you've spoken about with the handling of cases in the Baltimore, Maryland area with the police and state's attorney's offices, et cetera? Would love to hear your feedback on that. Okay. And again, this is just my opinion. And I have to be honest with you, I've never had any experience with the police or the state's attorney's office before. I was a defendant in a car crash because I hit the back of somebody on 95, but I won because he wanted the previous damage to be blamed on me. So I have gotten a couple parking tickets, but I've never had any like run-ins with cops. So I do believe that, and this was said in the series, there is a really nasty underbelly in Baltimore. And I think that it's been going on. It's almost like the old boys club, like mafia kind of connections. And I grew up in a family on the Baltimore City County line that was in like a really nice row, not a nice neighborhood, but like a real average row houses with a playground behind it, the West Hills neighborhood near Route 40 West. So we weren't exposed to a lot of rough stuff. And I lived in the city when I was in my 20s and did the city girl thing, and I was still pretty safe. So I think that, yeah, there is a lot going on that's not acceptable, but I don't know that's characteristic of just Baltimore. Now, Baltimore does have the unfortunate title of being like the homicide capital of the world. Nobody really goes to Baltimore for entertainment anymore. And when I was younger, when I was like in my 20s, we used to go to Bells Point and uh, Canton and all different places hanging out. You'd come home at two or three o'clock in the morning and you'd walk from your car and you'd be perfectly fine. But I think that there was stuff going on. And I do think that there are bad cops. And I think Maskell found some bad cops. Now, I'm going to give you real quickly. We know that politician named Mamie DePietro, who is named publicly as an abuser, he was a high-ranking politician, and he's dead, but his name is in print. He kept a really horrible bar from shutting down where there was a lot of really illegal drugs and weird sex and all kind of crazy stuff going on inside. It was called Cicero's on the East End. 
on the east side of Baltimore. And he was the one that kept that from shutting down. So I think it's there. I think the generation before mine, like my parents' generation, they probably knew about it. It was just something that was just accepted. Now it seems to be more street crime, not like this planned network stuff. Okay. That was a good question. We do know that there was corruption at the time Mm -hmm. of Kathy's murder. Mm -hmm. We know that because of the survivors and everything they told us. So that didn't go along with this question, but let someone else give us a question. Okay. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Joyce Helen Malecki also disappeared shortly after Sister Kathy, did they ever link those two together? Okay. The connection between Kathy and Joyce is that Bakio is not far from where Joyce's family lived. Okay. The police believe the crimes are connected. They also believe that two other crimes are connected to those two and maybe six altogether. But Joyce was not at Keo. She went to Lansdowne High School. So when I was at Keogh, when Sister Kathy was there, if I was 17, Joyce was like 20, and Kathy was 26. So Joyce did not know Kathy. There was no reason for her to, okay? However, St. Clement's was the church that the Maleckis attended, and that is the same church where Joseph Maskell was the assistant pastor. So that would be the similarity. Now, Tom Nugent has mentioned that the Maleckis made like sponsorship on the yearbook, you know, how you sell $10 ads, but that doesn't really tell us anything because they really, somebody could have knocked at the door and said, Mom, I go to Keo, will you buy an ad for the yearbook? And they could have said, yes. Maskell did send them a Christmas card, but he probably sent everybody in the parish a Christmas card, right? So... There's no family connection. The connection would have been St. Clement's and that he was living there and he was working at Keogh. A lot of people don't understand that the priest did not live at Keogh. There's no rectory there. That's a house that priests live in. The nuns lived there. So Joseph Maskell was living at St. Clement's Parish So those of you that know about Charles Brands, after his mom reported that Charles had been abused, the diocese reassigned Maskell to Keogh. But at the end of the day, he still drove his car back to St. Clement's to go and live there. So he could have been around kids in the afternoon. At around the same time, that old rectory, which sits over there near the St. Clement's church, 
was being sold so a new one could be built. So Maskell then went and lived at Our Lady of Victory Parish. And there was abuse that went on there when he was living in that rectory. So that's how the two are connected. My gut is telling me that Joyce saw something or knew something. And when I talked to her family in the last year, they told me that they heard, I think, Shane, you were with me when they said this. That would be almost two years ago now that they heard that Joyce said to Joseph Maskell, if you touch my younger sister, I'll kill you. Do you remember mm-hmm. that, Shane? Yeah, I do. And, yeah. Maskell didn't like to be told no. And Joyce's feistiness was probably like Kathy's. And if a woman told him no, and I'm not saying that the survivor said yes, but I believe that he used drugs, alcohol, and, and manipulated their minds so that they were just beside themselves. But I think as older adults, if Kathy and Joyce said no to him, he would be like, okay, they're going to be in the collateral damage column because I'm getting rid of them. And so I think it could have been something like that. Yeah. Also, when we learned that during their time in Baltimore, most recently, we also learned that the police at the time believed that the person who drove Kathy and Joyce's car was driving with both feet. That was another interesting connection. Right. I forgot about that. Should we explain what that means, Shane? Yeah, go for it. Because some people are going to, what are you talking about? Okay. When Kathy's car was found, okay, there was mud on the brake, but not the gas pedal. So if the person that was driving her car brought it, when they brought it back to the apartments, drove with their right foot, they would put the right foot on the gas, then they put the right foot on the gas pedal, on the brake. There would have been mud on both. There was mud on one and not the other. So that would indicate that maybe the left foot had mud on it and the right foot didn't. But we do believe that the car went into a muddy area. Yeah, we also know that. Right. Edgar changed the tires, didn't he? Yeah, and we also know that people who drive with two feet, that's not a very common thing even now. We do Uh have some more questions. Uh Uh-huh. Sharon May. Has anybody heard from her since it's been three years? I feel like she now should come forward and let everybody know what she knows and quit hiding. Yeah. I'm just checking. Yeah. To answer your question, no. We've reached out to her. And I know someone who is her cousin. And they reached out and her family said she doesn't want to talk to anybody about this. Please leave her alone. We wanted her to do a podcast where she could say whatever she wanted because we don't censor people. So if there's somebody out there, we we can change your name and your voice and the whole thing. Shane? Yeah, definitely. Like right now, this is not really Gemma and Shane changed (laughs) my voice so it sounds like her. Nah. Anyway, no, Sharon May... Okay, everybody that was involved in the Keepers had to sign a release form. That is not a non-disclosure form, a release form, which means that the filmmakers can use anything that you said or did or that they filmed, however, for the movie, right? So she signed the release form. Now, she didn't come across very well, but I can give you a couple little tidbits of information Her husband is a retired Baltimore City police officer, and 
I can't imagine her law practice surviving all of the criticism that she got from the people that saw her in the capers. So we have a behavior analyst that works with us and he's federally trained and he did watch her and he had a lot of comments about her saying we could we should probably repost those podcast episodes where he analyzes different people but i think he found her questionable as well don't you think yeah i will say this for her at least she was willing to go on camera the archdiocese wasn't willing right. to do that you're right keepers. you're right yep but we yep. did email her and she did turn us down for anyone who would come on and talk to us, as I did with Sean Kane, I would remain respectful. So with Gemma, but she didn't want anything to do with it. But a lot of people always ask us about her. And we did do a podcast with someone mm-hmm. who had dealings with her to show, yeah, it was Brooke, another podcaster. And what was her sense that she was not being truthful? Yeah. She dealt with her on a previous case and she was relaying to us how Sharon May was hiding documents and being very shady. So that was just a way for us to verify the behavior that a lot of survivors and other people were suggesting that she was doing. Mm -hmm. That Brooke had no connection to the keepers or survivors. She was just telling us of a different case that Sharon had worked and the shady things that she had done for that case. So for anyone listening, I do recommend going back, especially if you want to know more mm-hmm. about Sharon and stuff that happened before and after this did entire you, thing. Did you, say, did you just say the shady thing she did or the shitty thing that she did? Both. What did I you said just shady. Say? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I said just shady. Checking. Okay. Why has COVID turned us all into potty mouths? <laughs> that is true. Don't you think? I don't think that you cussed <laughs> in any of our previous filmings. But give oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Give you a live okay. feed. Okay. What's funny about okay. doing this, though, and what I think is entertaining, is when we are recording for podcasts and even when we're interviewing uh-huh. people, there is lots of back and forth and we laugh about random things that we cut out of the episode to make mm-hmm. it more better. That's just mm-hmm. something fun that people can witness when they're I like here. this. We should, let's do this every week or every yeah. month. I'll make things up. Okay, huh? let's go. What's next? <laughs> Who's next? So someone would like to know what sparked you into investigating Sister Kathy's case in the first place. Boy, I get asked that a lot. How can I say this without sounding trite? She was such the real deal. She was Julie Andrews without being too sweet seat. She's the reason I became a teacher. And I had her for English class and three years of drama club. And everything about her made us want to work harder. So she was a fabulous teacher. She used what's called the Socratic method, which means she's probing us with questions that make us think deeper and harder and reach higher. And we responded and we asked for more. And I remember so clearly being in her classroom and how much I would look forward to that And then I also had Sister Russell for math, and I was not a really good math student, but she made it fun. She was a great math teacher. She was adorable. I love that lady. But I guess when she was murdered, we were all heading off to college, and it wasn't solved, and years went by, and it was like one of my friends, we'd always share articles that showed up in the newspaper every couple of years about it. I didn't know her family. 
And then when Tom Nugent, wrote, and again, this is in my book, Keeping One, How I Came to Know Why I Was Born, available paperback, ebook, and audible now. So you get to listen to this voice for eight hours. Would that be <laughs> exciting? I know. I was so embarrassed listening to myself, I had to turn it off. But anyway, so there was always this thing like in the back of my mind. And when Tom Nugent was getting ready to write his story, Who Killed Sister Kathy, he was literally going through yearbooks and just trying to find phone numbers. And he found mine and he reached me and we talked and he asked me if I'd like to contribute to the story. And I did. And I talked about what an impact she had on my life. So that was in 2006. I can't believe that. We kept in touch off and on over the next couple of years. And I finally said one day, are you coming back to Baltimore to finish this story? And he said, yes, I am. Let's meet in September. And we did. We drove around and looked at everything, where everything happened. And he decided if he couldn't get his next story published, that he would do it himself. So he started his own. It's called Inside Baltimore. And it's like a blog. But he couldn't get that Sister Kathy story published. Finally, the city paper published it. But Tom was back on his mission. He is really an investigative reporter in every sense of the word. And I'm not sure there are too many of those around anymore. Anyway, he truly is an investigative reporter. So he digs and he looks and he finds answers. So it was a joy working with him. Now, I talked to him a few months ago, and he's really pulled back on all of this. He has chosen, the whole story has taken its toll on so many people in terms of health, mental and physical and emotional well-being, that a lot of people are just, they really just don't want to deal with it anymore. So he's not written any more about it recently, but he's really the impetus for my involvement. And then once I got involved and we set up the Facebook pages and I reached out to ask if any Keo women heard anything about the abuse or about Kathy and we would talk to him and people came out of nowhere and the numbers just kept growing. And so he interviewed a number of them. And then a Keo colleague is Ryan Whites. He's our director from The Keepers, his aunt. And she sent him an article and she said, what do you think about this as a documentary? And he came out from Los Angeles and met with Gene several times. Gene's family really vetted him. And he told me that if she hadn't made the commitment, they weren't going to go forward. So once she said she'd be okay doing it, and as long as we were all protected and we had oversight on what we were asked to do, that's when they got in touch with me. And of course, I talked to everybody. So I rallied the troops and that was the beginning of it. And they just came back for about a week every month and they financed most of it themselves until investors started seeing what they were doing and provided the money for them to finish it. They have so many great documentaries. If you guys want to find out about them, just go to Tripod Media and you get a long list and award-winning. The Keepers was nominated for, let me make this, what is it, an Emmy Award because it's on TV. Yes, Academy Awards are on movies. This is an Emmy Award. So that's how I got interested and I don't see myself stopping. I work on this every day, not all day, 
because I really believe that I need balance in my life. I'm very right brain. So I paint, I write, I do house projects. I have my dog who's sound asleep right now. And amazingly, because I'm on the phone, I leave time for people in my life. I have a wonderful support system. Most of the people that are listening tonight are part of that. You know it, and I appreciate you so much. So let's go ahead and stop it here, Gemma. Okay, thanks, everybody. Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.